Congressman Lipinski, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's good to be with you. Why don't we start with your background? You know, where'd you start off? You know, the arc of your career and then uh, what you're doing now. Well, I don't want to take up the whole hour talking about uh, the entire arc of my my career. Uh, but uh, I uh, served in Congress for, for 16 years, uh, beginning with the uh, was first elected in 2004 district, the third district of Illinois which is the southwest side of Chicago, southwestern suburbs. Uh, prior to that, I was a political science professor, worked at the University of Tennessee and at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, and prior to getting my PhD in poli-sci from Duke, I had two degrees in engineering, mechanical engineering from Northwestern and engineering economic systems from Stanford. So I have a really varied background, uh, but uh, I, I'm very much a... Um, as a member of Congress, was very much an engineer, always, always looking for, uh, you know, looking for as much information as I could get, uh, looking for the data. Um, I worked on the, uh, served on the House Transportation Infrastructure Committee and on the Science, Space, and Technology Committee. The uh, Transportation Infrastructure Committee, TNI, uh, was a, was very important for the district. Uh, Midway Airport is, um, was in the district, uh, and Chicago's just transportation hub for, for the country. So that was really critical for the for the district. Science, Space, and Technology Committee, I loved. Uh, that was right up my alley. Uh, and I worked a lot in, with regard to the National Science Foundation. Uh, I wrote the bill to reauthorize uh, the NSF at one point. Um, and I worked a lot on technology, especially on um, driverless cars, driver, driverless vehicles. We worked a lot on, on that, and also helping to uh, to help the federal government to teach entrepreneurship. Uh, there's a great program called the Innovation Corps, uh, which is probably the most successful thing that I worked on in my 16 years. We it was in the National Science Foundation first, and it spread throughout the uh, the federal government and essentially teach researchers um, first start out as researchers at universities, professors, graduate students, uh, team them up with the entrepreneur and basically teach them how to be entrepreneurial and take some of their discoveries from the lab and, and turn them in, in, into products. And so I helped expand that at the NSF, then expand it through different departments in, in the government something called Hacking for Defense to help uh, defense intelligence and intelligence agencies uh, along the same lines, uh, something I worked on. So those are some of the things that I did as a, uh, when I was in Congress. Um, the last uh, year and a half, I have been consulting. Uh, I'm the president of Lipinski Solutions. I've also been writing and, and out speaking mostly about Congress, how, how to improve Congress, and also as a uh, as a Catholic living as a uh, Catholic and serving in Congress in and in politics uh, and how my faith uh, affected that. So it sounds like you're originally on an engineering track. Why did you shift off into politics uh, in political science? 
Well, I never really wanted to be an engineer, uh, believe it or not. I was good at math and science in high school, and I thought, I'm going to college. My parents are paying all this money to send me to uh, to Northwestern. Uh, I'm going to get a degree that's that's worth something. And and I, I like the engineering. I love problem solving. I, that is what I, I still it really motivates me every day. I, I love solving problems, uh, and that's what engineering is. But I never really planned to to be an engineer. Uh, I think right you know, when, throughout everything that I did, you know, political science. Uh, I went into that because government and politics, something I always loved. Uh, my father was involved in politics. He was in Congress for 22 years. Before that, he was an alderman in Chicago City Council. But in Chicago, politics is just, at least back when I was growing up in the 70s, 80s, what, what was everywhere. People understood the importance of, of government and the role of, of government. And they looked at it to get practical things done. They wanted their streets plowed in the winter. They wanted to make sure their garbage was picked up. The street lights were, were working. The, the roads were repaired. Uh, and, and so I've always understood the importance of, of government. Uh, also growing up in, in uh, the, the 70s, uh, it's a very, you know, my neighborhood, first generation, first and second generation uh, immigrants, uh, very patriotic. Uh, when Ronald Reagan came along in, in the 80s, uh, it was, and I, I was a Reagan Democrat, and no question about it, a lot of people who I grew up with we're Reagan Democrats. So, you know, politics is something that a lot of people think, well, it, it came from your, your father. To some extent it, it did, but, you know, it, it really permeated so many things. I had friends who were interested, I mean, a very young age, just interested in government politics and knew that that's how you get things done. And, and it, let, let me, one, one quick story here. When I was, I think it was 12 years old, uh, I got together with a friend of mine, actually my friend who was two years older than me, had, had the idea of a, um, a petition to the Japanese government. This is, okay, late 1970s. The petition to the Japanese government was to say, stop your fishermen from killing dolphins when they're fishing for tuna. And so we got these petitions printed up. We went out in front of the grocery stores, went to Brookfield Zoo, got signatures on there, and sent them to the uh, Japanese embassy in Washington, D.C. So I mean, my political activism goes back a, a a long way. Excellent. So you wound up getting your PhD and then writing a dissertation, I think, related to communication. Can you talk a little bit about your PhD experience and then why you selected that topic for your dissertation? What you and then later on, I think you had a book following up with that. You know, so what what questions were you asking? You know, in that in that research, and then what did you find both there? You know, when before you went to Congress and then afterwards, and how it evolved. Well, I was always very much, because I didn't have a political science background going into grad school in, in poli-sci, I was really interested in the pr practical politics. And so I wanted to look at the communication from, from members of Congress. Uh, I, you know, I, I had worked in a couple of congressional offices over, over the summer and had some uh, idea what uh, go, goes on there. I was always interested in, again, the way things work. And, and so how do members of Congress get uh, elected, get, get reelected? And, and there was a, uh, the conventional wisdom was members of Congress run for Congress by running against Congress. They, they bash Congress, members of Congress bash Congress all the time. That was the conventional wisdom. 
And I wanted to test that. And so I looked at the newsletters that members sent out in a hundred districts over a five year period to see was that was that true. Uh, and I, I found that for, fortunately, um, the Republicans, fortunately from my uh, academic side, Republicans took over the House in, uh, in the 94 election. So I had some I had a change in control, but it was really members, if they were in the majority, they were saying Congress is actually doing good things. They weren't just bashing Congress. Everyone didn't just bash Congress. So you saw the partisanship was was important there. And so that really wasn't what the, the conventional wisdom was, but it, it may just been because of the changing times from the 70s when that first became popular to, to the, the 90s. Things that continue changing, and we'll talk more about that. I also looked to see if members could successfully communicate how they voted on something to their constituents. So I looked at public, uh, you know, public opinion data, looked at surveys on uh, a couple issues, see if members who talked about how they voted, uh, controlling for other factors, if their constituents were more likely to be able to correctly say how I voted. And I found that they were. Uh, and I also found that in the 94 election, uh, Democrats who who were saying Congress is doing a good job uh, were actually more likely to lose than their Democratic colleagues who were who were not not doing that, and so the it had consequences. So that was my dissertation. It wound up being published uh, by University of Michigan Press. Uh, it came that book came out in two thousand and four. Uh, I thought that that was going to be my my great opportunity at, at, at that time to go. Uh, maybe go back out on, on, on the job market as a political scientist. And instead, uh, my father came to me and said, I'm, I, I'm, I'm gonna retire. Uh, are you interested in, in running? And uh, whatever it was at that moment, I thought, well, I, I've been teaching poli sci now for a number of years. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's time I should go in there and, uh, and, and work on doing it myself. And so, you know, the experience from going from academic to practitioner, how was that? How was that transition? There wasn't a whole lot that I learned in grad school that helped me to be a politician, be, be a member of Congress. Now, the workings of the these general workings of, of Congress, the way things operated, I, it probably that it was helpful to me to to some extent to understand and think about committees and how. And, and how committees work, uh, and, and in general, to understand the rules maybe a little better than some of my uh, my colleagues did, who I came into the into the house with. But when it comes to actually politics and how politics work, and that's all stuff that you uh, that you don't learn in uh, you don't learn so much in the classroom. You, you actually learn it out in the field. And what about your concept on communications? Do you think that? has held up over time. Do you think it's still the same today where it feels like everybody runs against Congress one way or the other? Maybe it's the same conventional wisdom that was back then. Do you think that your 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 conclusions or your um, your hypotheses still hold today? Well, I, I think in the sense that it's gotten even more partisan than it was in, in the 90s. And you have more, basically, you know, Democrats uh, and Republicans much more than ever before hang together. The, the leadership uh, really controls everything on, on both sides. We can get more into that either now or, or, or later. And I, I think that's the biggest problem right now with, with Congress is that 
representatives, we, we, we are seeing a house, especially. The house is acting as if it's a, a, a parliament. Uh, that is, members are running more on saying, you know, I'm just, I'm going to support the party. I'm going to support the party platform, the party agenda. I'm going, to, I'm going to vote for it and vote for me. And you're voting for the party. Uh, instead of the way our our government was set up, you know, specifically the uh, framers of the Constitution did not want a parliament. They wanted representatives to represent their constituents. There are not just two types of people. They're not just red people and blue people. There's not just two ways of thinking. A great amount of diversity in this country, even when this country was founded, there's a great amount of, of, of diversity. It's, it's much more today. And I think that diversity is not being represented because we, you have members of Congress in both parties acting as if they're just, I'm just elected to represent the party, not my, my constituents. So I'd like to come back to the the whole notion of centralization and all about and also about the, the issue of representation. But first, maybe I'd like to continue on a little bit on this communications or broaden that aspect to information flow within Congress, because I think what you looked at was this in your thesis was really about information flow from the congressman to their constituents. Right. And then yeah. analyzing that in some way. I'm curious about, you know, the general information flow in Congress. So, you know, you have members, they're receiving information from staff, from lobbyists, from outside groups, um, from each other, you know, and and it's being processed in some way, right, by, by, by their parties, I guess. It's being processed in some way, and then that's turning into decisions and into activities. Can you talk a little bit about just the information flow within Congress and what are the important flows and what has changed about those flows over time? Uh, th this could be a, a uh, potentially a whole book, and this is something that was one of my greatest frustrations as a member of Congress was trying to get good information, because most information comes to members of Congress from their party, from their party leadership. The party leadership is not trying to give information to their members to make a good decision. They're trying to give them information that will convince them to follow the party leader. And so, as I as I said earlier, I'm I want to understand. I want to have the data, I, and I I'd like to have experts who who are as objective as possible. Everyone's going to have their biases, but I, I'd like to have people really give me their expert opinion on what's they think is going to work, what's not going to work. And it's so it's so hard to get any of that information when you're a member of Congress. Um, Again, the most information comes from the party, from the party leadership. And they're just trying to get you to go along. They're giving you this information and they, they want you to take this and they want you to go out and, and talk to your constituents and talk to the, the press about this to, to convince everyone that the party's way is, is the right way. The other party's way is, is the wrong way. And trying to find people who will provide good information and it was it was tough to do uh my my staff i i always you know good staff is just incredibly important i this always is office, this is your office staff versus office the staff. staff yeah yeah office staff is so important yeah. because you need to have people that you can trust who understand what your interests are what the interest of the district is and can go out there and and do the research to try to get information 
that is as straightforward as as possible. I always had a a PhD in either physics or chemistry uh, working on my science committee work because I wanted someone who could actually understand a lot of the, the these issues and, and dive into it. And I think that's unique. I don't I don't think most members really seek seek that out. But it's so hard to get get good information. I back during the um, Affordable Care Act debate, usually in, in a in a caucus meeting, a party caucus meeting, Democrats call it a caucus, Republicans call it a conference. That's what they call their their membership. So in a Democratic caucus meeting, uh, they're bringing in people who were talking about the Affordable Care Act and what was being proposed, what was needed, and there was actually a person who they brought in who a rarity who I, I thought actually had some good ideas that weren't exactly what the party was pushing. And I went up to this gentleman afterwards and um, introduced myself. And I wound up, he wound up being my, um, for the next eight years I was in Congress, he was someone who I went to all the time and would ask him questions because I thought he was going to give me a, an, an objective answer. And so I would look for people who, in different areas, that uh, I would find that I can I can go and talk to, and I can ask questions to who I thought were going to give it to, give me a, a straight answer. And so it's it's just so important. I don't think that many members do that. Uh, politically, you don't need to do that uh, for for the most part. Unfortunately, you don't need to understand what you're voting on. Uh, most members don't even know, I hate to say it a lot of times, what they're voting on. Uh, no one knows exactly what's in every bill. There's so much that nobody knows or some staffer wrote that that staffer knows what's what that is in there. Uh, and, and I think that's something that is really lacking is members, part of it is that they don't have time. It's hard as a member of Congress to have time, but it also, it doesn't have its rewards for the most part. You're not rewarded for how much you know. It's it's not that if you can really understand, explain something, even if you can come up with a better solution, uh, it doesn't mean that your your party or anyone is going to going to listen to you. If it, it just doesn't always pay to, to take that time. But for me, I just wanted to understand, and I wanted to be able to push for what I thought were better solutions to problems. So you mentioned the you know, the notion of uh, the party flow of information to the member. You talked about your own independent through your office collecting information or experts. What about through the committees? You know, did you get other insights that are gained from hearings and from these types of things? Or is that mainly for show and you don't get real information that way? Mostly hearings are for show. Uh, it's unfortunate, but that's that's generally the way it is. The science committee was a little bit better, I thought. And um, you actually would have more scientific, you know, more experts in, in fields who would come in and, and, and provide good information, especially when it came to oversight. You know, th th there was, there's not enough oversight that goes on. Congress does not, commit, committees do not do as much oversight as they should be doing, especially of what's going on in the government. Uh, but sometimes, sometimes they do, and that was when the experts really were were most valuable, who would come and testify at uh, 
at hearing. And again, it would it would really depend on uh, you know some experts you knew, some people you knew were brought into a hearing uh, just to give their expert opinion. Some were brought in because the you know the 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 party had uh, their message that they wanted to get uh, to get out there. But um, in committee hearings, the, the questions that members ask, some were really probing. Uh, much of it was un unfortunately not. It was to some of it, depending on the subject. Sometimes it was to try to get a uh, a good clip uh, to to use for political purposes or a good question used for an answer get for political reasons. And so the information that's coming then from the committees is mainly symbolic uh, through these hearings and other things. It sounds like the meat uh, is coming from the party. Now, how is the party collecting then its information and making its decisions? Is it all centralized in one person or is there a small cadre who are making all the decisions and then disseminating it to all the members? You know, how does that or is it totally different from year to year and party to party? Well, let me take a step back. The <clears throat> committee staff... Although it, it's changed to some extent over the years, committee staff, say 20 years ago, when I, when I first came, came into Congress, committee staff was really uh, exceptional for what they, for being experts in, in you know, the areas that they, they, they covered. There is actually, and it's amazing that this happened. So I was first elected in 2004, so I had one term under Republican majority, then uh, the 2006 election, Democrats took the uh, took the majority in the House. There were some committee staff on the Science Committee that were kept on from the Republican majority to the Democratic majority. And, and the chairman of the committee makes the uh, makes decision on, on, on who gets hired. But there are people who had the expertise. So the incoming Democratic chairman, Bart Gordon, uh, kept some of those committee staff on, but I saw over the, the last 20 years, committee staff more and more, they were, they were brought in for ideological reasons. That, that, was, that was more important, their, their ideological bent uh, than their expertise in the, in the areas. It varies by, by committee and in, in general, the most knowledgeable people on, when it comes to subject matter, on the Hill are committee staffers. I mean, there's no question about it. They have more knowledge than certainly the members have uh, because they're just dedicated to particular issues. So they still are the ones that, most of them are very good uh, and you know have real expertise. Unfortunately, what happens more and more now is especially on, on, on bigger issues, the speaker, no matter if it's Democrat or Republican speaker, will exercise control over what comes to the floor, what's in legislation. So if it's on a, a smaller issue, not something that's you know, big, that's going to get that much attention, the committees really can have their say. And they really work the way they, they should work to, to some extent on a lot of you know legislation that is, is not you know, sort of the the big items. Uh, and, and that's where committee staff uh, does a very good job, I think, uh, of putting things together. Although, again, I, I think they're a little bit more ideologically driven now than they, they used to be. They used to be 
more really expertise driven. But when it comes to bigger issues, uh, the, the speaker's office basically is calling the shots. Uh, and the, the speaker's staff is calling the shots and telling committees what to do, which which I think is a uh, it, it is a terrible that 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 has that that has happened. I, I really think more committees need to be given more authority to to do their do their work and not just be directed by the by the speaker. Does the speaker's office or the you know the, do they have then a kind of a shadow committee system where they have their own? expert staff in each area and they determine the policy and then push that down to the committees you know how does that work then with the information flow well to, to some extent there there are the, the speaker's office has that to some extent but mostly i i think that it is the speaker staff makes clear to the committee staff the direction that they want to go and make sure that they are working closely with that committee staff, that that committee staff is doing what the speaker wants them to do, what they want the committee to do. So it's not that the speaker's office has the same expertise the committee staffers have. I think it's the speaker's staff are really on top of the committee staff to say, okay, this is what, this is what we want. Um, and so write the bill, write this language, uh, in order to 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 do that, I, I'm, that's my impression of, of the way things work. So when we talk about kind of general trends from when you entered Congress to today or when you left, you know, you mentioned the centralization right of power. There, you, you know, in, in especially in the House, you talked about the the polarization. What other changes did you see over that period of time um, in terms of your experience? How did Congress change over those years? members who really wanted to come in there and get and get something done uh really to dig into and understand first of all how congress works who wanted to work on the inside to get things done you see more you've seen that go down and you see people who run for congress i i think there are people who run for congress now who have no interest in being a representative or they they have a completely different vision they, they don't want to be a legislator, I should say. They don't want to legislate as much as they want to be able to have the blue check mark and to be able to go out there and state broad positions. But they don't want to have to go in there, get their hands dirty, figure out, okay, how are we going to try to move policy in the direction that I want to move it? Instead, they're they're happy to go out there. And unfortunately, they get reelected on it saying, oh, I want this brand change. But the real work happens. Uh, you, you've got to write legislation and then you got to figure out how to get that legislation through. Uh, and that involves a, a, a lot of work. You have to understand, hopefully you, you understand what the consequences of what you're trying to do is. Uh, you, you Not just throwing something out there that's going to be that's going to sound good, that but it's actually going going to work, and, and then you have to work work through the process to, to get it done. I think there are fewer people who run for Congress now who want to be legislators like that, and people who want to do that. I saw so many people through the 2010s get frustrated and, and left. Uh, it especially happened on the 
Republican side after the 2010 election. I saw a lot of Republicans who were very frustrated because they were in the majority, uh, but they couldn't get anything done because they had the uh, they had the Freedom Caucus that was uh, demanding that they move the policy further to the right. They, they couldn't get a they had a major they had a majority in the House and they couldn't get things passed. And they, I think a lot of Republicans who felt like they they were there to get things done. They weren't getting anything done. They they left. And unfortunately, I, I think on the uh, and some of them got defeated in primaries or, or scared in, in prime about being primaried. And you know they they realized that uh, doing the, the the hard work uh, wasn't how you you stayed there. You, you had to sort of follow the uh, what, what the popular whatever the popular line was at at, at the time. I think now we see that on the Democratic side. Uh, and it, it's a shame. I, I don't like what has happened to the uh, to the House. I look. I think most people who run for Congress do it for a for a good reason, and and they they want to see they want to see policy put in place that they think is going to be good for for the country. Uh, but being a legislator uh, takes a lot of hard work, and I think there are too few who want to do that work. And the incentive to put that work in is has been lowered tremendously because a, the Speaker of the House determines so much uh, what is going to go into legislation, especially big legislation. Again, there's a difference. Most of the legislation that we never hear about, you know, there is good work being, being done. But the big legislation, it's being oftentimes written in the speaker's office, or at least at the behest of the speaker, what the speaker wants. And that, that discourages members from really putting in the, the, the effort to, to try to be good legislators. Yeah, it sounds like a, a, it's a cycle, right? Because if the speakership is further increased in power, um, it weakens the individual members and you get individual members who don't want to be there because they can't do anything. And so they're going to be disruptive to the process. Uh, and be more showboats than uh, workhorses. So what about in terms of, if we think about, you know, some of the procedural elements of Congress, right? Whether it's parliamentary procedure or whether it's procedures that work within committees, clearly the speaker, you know, for instance, the speaker controls the rules committee in the house, right? And so that's one way in which the speakers consolidated this power. When you think about procedural change in committee or even on the floor, are there sets of procedures or, you know, norms of procedure that you think have changed over time or that could be changed to improve the situation? The committees need to be allowed to do their work. Uh, that That's the most important thing uh, without the interference from the, uh, the speaker's office. Um, so, so does that mean then that if a in your in your opinion, if a committee reported a bill, it should go to the floor and take that power away from the rules committee to stop it. Would that be yeah. the kind of change that would create the situation that you're describing? Yes, I, I think that that can be done. Back, let's see, back in 2018, after 2018 election, I was in a group um, called the Problem Solvers Caucus. It was evenly divided, Democrats, Republicans, usually about 25, 25 
And we would get together weekly and we try to come up with issues that we could work together on. Uh, prior to the 2018 election, Paul Ryan announced, he was a speaker at the time, announced he was not going to you know, be, if Republicans still had the majority, he still he was, did not want to be speaker. Um, we knew there was going to be a new speaker no matter what. A group of us in the promise office caucus got together and said, hey, we have, we have leverage here and we are going to, after the elections, go to whoever wants to be the speaker and say, we want to see these rules, these rule changes, or else we're not going to vote for you for speaker. Democrats wound up getting the majority. Uh, so there were about eight or nine of us on the Problems Solvers Caucus on Democratic side who, who after the election uh, stuck to that and said, we want to see these rule changes. Uh, we wound up, unfortunately, only getting a couple smaller ones that uh, got, got implemented. But we had a whole set of rules changes. And one of them you know, was that the, uh, if the committee reported a bill, that it would get to the floor. And when you know, the speaker could not block that, in order to give the, the, the power back to the committee since the committee chairman. Uh, committee chairmen have used to have a whole lot more power. Now they are so much, they, they, they do what the, uh, what the speaker wants them to do. We also had another uh, another rule change that I thought was really yeah, could have been very helpful is saying, I think we started out with saying maybe, I don't know if it was 10 or 20 uh, members on, uh, on, in each party. If, say it was, you know, if you had 20 members, 20 Democrats, 20 Republicans who wanted to offer an amendment to a bill on the floor, that, that the rules committee would have to make that amendment in order. And I think that would have been tremendously helpful. Um, if you look at the, at the amendments that are made in order by the rules committee, I mean, there, there's a, a political purpose behind pretty much every one of, of them. Um, it, it's not a policy purpose, it, it's a political purpose. And um, again, if you did have something like that and say, hey, you get bipartisan support for an amendment, you get to actually have a floor vote on, on that, you would then encourage members to get together as, uh, you know, in, in bipartisan manner to come up with I, I, ideas. Say, hey, we can actually get something done here. Let's, let, let's work together. And I think things like that. But then that takes, look, that does take power away from the majority and away from the speaker. Um, but I think that needs to be done. So what about on the floor itself, besides amendments, any other ideas there? Like, you know, there's this whole talk about the motion to recommit. There's, you know, how much delay can one, can a larger minority impose on the majority's interest in passing a bill? You know, what else did you have in there that might, um, improve the power distribution? Well, I, the motion to recommit basically has been um, rendered pretty much ineffective now. It, does, it, it doesn't mean much or anything. It used to be an opportunity. Uh, the, the original idea of the motion to recommit was a good idea. The, the minority party had a, a last chance. They're guaranteed a last chance to try to amend a piece of legislation. But it wasn't just being used for political purposes. It wasn't used for you know, good policy 
reasons. Um, now, now there still is a motion to recommit, but you, you're not actually offering a particular amendment even. It's a completely meaningless vote now. I mean, I, I, there's no purpose to it whatsoever. Um, it, it's it's tough. I mean, the, the majority has to be allowed to to work. Um, the problem is, again, we are. This is not a parliamentary system. It's not supposed to be a parliamentary system. Uh, there's other changes that are. You know, outside of Congress that are going to be needed, but I still think there are rules changes, changes to the rules that that, that can help uh, empower individual members and, and encourage bipartisan uh, cooperation. There's also a, another uh, proposal that that we had um, about uh, on committees, so that that would encourage bipartisanship on 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 committees, uh, I think it was, uh, if you had a, you you were guaranteed to get a markup on a bill in committee if you had a Democrat and Republican on that committee who were sponsoring, co-sponsoring that that bill. Uh, so the, the committee would, wouldn't necessarily have to pass, you know, committee could do its work, but it would force the committee then to, to consider that, that legislation. So there, there's a, a number of other parts uh, to that rules change that we that we wanted. Um, but some something has to be be done to make Congress, uh, especially the House. Again, it's not in the House. It, let me say this. Look, if you go back the last dozen years, every major piece of legislation that has become law, pretty much every major piece has come out of the Senate. I mean, look at what's happened you know, th this past past year, you had the bipartisan infrastructure bill. That was a Senate bill. There's nothing. It came completely out of Senate. The House had no say in that whatsoever. The reconciliation bill, the um, uh, Inflation Reduction Act, basically wound up, wound up being called out of the Senate. That's it. The um, the gun safety bill out of the, came out of Senate. No House. You know, House had no say in it whatsoever. You go back a dozen years, that's the way it's been. I mean, that is, that's a problem. That is a big problem uh, that our, our government's not working the way it's supposed to work. The House has taken itself out of the process because it's become a messaging body for the, for the majority party, for the speaker. Uh, and, and that's not good. We got to figure out some way to, to, to change that. Again, I, I was very frustrated in when I was a member of the House, because I didn't want to, I wanted to be a legislator. I didn't want to just be there for messaging for my party. Um, and so I, I don't think most Americans aren't concerned about the process, don't really understand the process, which which I know. They, you know, most people don't have time for, for that. And they, they want to know what the results are. They want, want good results. But this government was set up this way for a particular reason. We have a House and a Senate for, for a number of reasons, but one is to give opportunities for multiple input opportunities for the American people. They have their representative, they have their two senators. Um, if the representative really isn't having the input, um, then you're, you're really disempowering members of the House, you're, you're, you're taking something away from their constituents. And I think that's a problem.
Well, this leads to my my next big question, which um, I ask all the all the uh, people who come on the program is about representation. What does representation actually mean, right? And so, you know, there's all kinds of ways people define representation. You know, you could say it's the when you're elected, you represent those primary voters, or you represent the all the voters, or you represent everybody in the district, or you represent all the future people in that district. You know. And party usually doesn't come into that. Like I represent my party and that's why I was elected. In my mind, that's not what the founders intended, but I'm curious to hear, you know, from your perspective, what should this representation mean in terms of who is represented, number one, but also, you know, is your job just to reflect the temporary views in your district? Are you making your own judgments about what policy should be in the best interest of those constituents in the long run? Well, uh, a lot of different parts there of uh, what, what representation is. I'll, I'll get, I'll deal with the last part first. That's the most, that's the most difficult. And I'll go through that quickly because there's no easy, easy answer on that. You know, do, do you just represent your, what your constituents want, or do you have, is there any room to be uh, for, for your own judgment? And I personally didn't have uh, a problem with that. I, there are very few times I can ever think of. I, you know, I can't even think of anything off the top of my head where I don't think that my vote uh, really reflected my constituents. And it would have been hard if I felt like I was disagreeing that I thought my judgment was uh, something different from what my constituents wanted. Um, I would have had a hard, very hard time with that because. I think that it's important for a representative to do what is best for their constituents and for the country. And so sometimes uh, if I thought that uh, my constituents wanted something that it wasn't going to be good for for the country, that that would have been problematic uh, for me in 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 my choice and my decision, what what I did. But I didn't have that problem, but I definitely had the problem that I, I saw that I thought I represented my constituents, all my constituents, not just the primary voters. And I think that's really where things have, it's, it's gotten to a point now, especially with the gerrymandering, the precision that gerrymandering can be done. It's become much in the precision of, of messaging, the, the way partisanship has, has become, the division in the country, so much more now representatives are representing their, the primary voters, the, the people who vote in, in their party's primary in their district. And look, that's even a relatively small percentage of, of the people in, in the district. I, I looked at the last uh, election that um, I was in. I, I think the number of people who voted in the Democratic primary was only about between 30 and 40 percent of the number of voters who voted in the general election for the Democrat. And so even amongst Democrats, it, it's, you know, it's not even the majority of the Democrats who are voting or the people who are going to vote Democratic in general election who vote in the Democratic primary. And that's a, that's a major problem. Uh, Do you think primaries should be eliminated? I mean, from my view, I've always been surprised that primaries exist because I don't know how parties can determine who's in the general election. Well, um, we go through a lot of parties. I, 
let me just say, I think that we should change. I'm not sure what the best system is right now. There's experiments going on. Alaska has a very interesting experiment right now where the primaries, it's an all party primary. Everyone, no matter what party you say you're with, you run in a, in a general primary. They take the top four out of that primary and then they have a second round. And the second round is ranked choice voting where then you have to take those top four. You need to rank them one through four for your preferences. And then we'll go into how it all gets counted down from there. But anything that is going to take away that uh, incentive to only represent a minority sometimes a relatively small small minority of your constituents, that's good. And yeah, this idea that, that the parties the parties get to choose who, who the candidates are. And let me tell you this, I looked at running, I consider running as an independent uh, uh, this year. Uh, after I lost the Democratic primary in, in 2020, I, I looked at running as an independent. The rules for an independent. I mean, each state makes their rules in terms of getting on the ballot. Let me just say one, the simplest thing. If you are a Democrat or Republican in the state of Illinois, you want to run in a Democratic or Republican primary, you needed to get 400 signatures of registered voters in your district. If you want to run in a general election as an independent in Illinois, you need to get 5,000 signatures of registered voters. The system is rigged against anyone who's not a Democrat or a Republican. And I, I just think the parties now are, are not producing candidates. They're producing more extreme candidates. But look, if you, if you want, I guess if you want to be elected, then you, you look at the incentives and, and you, you go along with what you're, you're incented to do. And then you cater to the Democrats, you cater to the, the farther left. The more extreme left and Republicans, the further right, or, or you know, whatever Donald Trump, whatever Donald Trump is going to favor, and uh, then that's that's the choice everyone voters get in general election, and that's I think that's one of the the, the problems that's going on with uh, with Congress, especially the the House right now, but the, the Senate's going more in that in that direction, unfortunately. So, how did you view the think about the future of your constituency? Right when you when you say you support you know you represent all your constituents is that the living constituents is that a generation down is it five generations 100 generations down like where do you see this notion of representation going in the future or do you only represent the people who live today and that's that's kind of your constituency well that's a that's a that's a really far-reaching question trying to trying to figure trying to figure that out i mean i i would say that i always have in in would always have in the back of my head that look, our, our, our country, we are not guaranteed to for for this republic for our this country and for our republic to last forever. And so we we can't just we can't just look at uh, today. There are things, you know. That, I don't think there's that many things that that come up, but there are times where you just have to. You have to look at, is this really going to be detrimental to the future? I, again, I don't think that comes up that often, but yeah, I, I think I think it. Well, I think for you, I think it'd be especially interesting in a way to ask this question, because when I think about the future, you know, this redistribution, you can always redistribute from the future to today, right? And if you're yeah. voting, if you represent people today, if you 
visualize your constituents as today's people, then you have every incentive to borrow from the future to give to today, right? And there are some, but on the other hand, the government has to in, do some kinds of planning. And you in particular were on the science, the space committee, right? In the space technology committee, you're in the science committee, you're on the transportation where there's like big infrastructure investments, right? So in a way, those committees are really future-oriented committees. Like you're building infrastructure that's not going to be, or in, and you're going to make scientific discoveries that aren't going to benefit the people today. They're going to benefit people in the future. In fact, in my mind, I'm kind of confused why those kinds of uh, committees can even exist, right? Because they're really slightly redistributive towards the future rather than redistribute, you know, redistributing from the future to the present, like the tax system might be doing or, or the, the bonds, you know, the borrowing anyway. So I'm curious when you, because a lot of your thinking is all about the future, right? The, this future infrastructure project or this science policy, how is this going to impact the development of science in the future? That really is thinking about future constituents versus, you know, current constituents. And so, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, I guess my question really is about when you think about you clearly in those committees, you must have been thinking about your future constituents as important stakeholders that you took into account their needs. Right. And at the same time, I don't understand how that can even exist in the current Congress, because it should be so short term oriented when you look at how the incentive structure is set up, as you mentioned, and most people's view of representation is some small group of today's people. That's a great question. I, when you first asked the, the question about, about the future, I didn't really quite, even for, for myself, sort of get to how much I actually do factor that in. But I don't think about it. I, I, I don't think about, well, I, 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 it never occurs to me, give up the future for today. Um, I, look, I, up, up on the wall over here, I actually, for once, I finally get to point that out. Um, that is, actually, this is a science committee bill up back there. Um, but this one, the USA Today, is the, I think, the Brave 38. This was back when, you know, we're, we're going back a while now, almost 10 years. Not quite, I don't think. The Simpson-Bowles Commission, the Deficit Debt Reduction Commission, um, was put together, come up with a proposal for you know, how we're going to get control of, of our debt, how we're going to cut our deficits, get, get some control over the, the rising debt. And there was a vote when we were voting on, on a budget in the House. Uh, there was an amendment that it, there was an, a budget offered, so a difference groups can offer their budget. The Democrats offer their budget, Republicans offer their budget. Then you have other caucuses who can offer a budget and they're usually made in order for, to, to vote on it. And so uh, there, there were two members, a Democrat and Republican who put forward something based on the, the Deficit Reduction Commission. And we, we knew it wasn't gonna pass, but we thought that we might get a, get a good vote and send a good signal. Um, Unfortunately, the uh, the pressure came on and in from both parties not to vote for it. The leadership of both parties put pressure on their members not to vote for it. In the end, 38 of us voted for it. 38 of us. It, it was split fairly evenly between Democrats and and Republicans. But that's because I mean we understand 
and I just, I think I internalize this so much. Yeah, I'm here not just for today, but for the future. And, and I'm assuming that my, when I was in Congress, I assume my constituents cared about the future. The future for, for them, for their children, their grandchildren, future generations, the future of the country. It's tough to make those. They, the way we see we've run up these the debt now, I mean, there, there really has been, some will argue it's not a problem. Some will argue that you know, we can run deficits and run up the debt. It's never going to hurt us. I, 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 don't, I don't believe that. I mean, that, that is an argument that, that is out there. But no, I, same thing with putting into scientific research. I, I, I think that I just naturally, and I always assumed that my constituents cared about the future also. Um, but it's harder to make that case. It's harder to sort of, it's so much easier to say, hey, I'm going to give you something today and don't worry about, about tomorrow. And people don't, it's not done directly, uh, but politicians do that all the time. And that's unfortunate. I don't think that, I mean, that cannot continue forever. And so, yes, I think I just internalized that so much. <laughs> the future, <laughs> we're building this infrastructure Yes, for today, but for tomorrow. And then when it comes to science and technology, it's for, yeah, it's for next year, but it's for a long time in, in the future also. And uh, I, I just think that's something that, um, you know, maybe I'm hoping we're not losing that, but sometimes I think we are. Yeah, I think the other way you can look at the future is through the present constituents, right? You just like you mentioned, you can say my future my current constituents, all the people living in my district today, they care about the future, so therefore I care about the future, right? They're going to have grandkids and, and that, so that's, on. That's what I assume. Right. Um, so that's one way to look at it. The other way is, you know, I directly represent those future people, um, which, you know, is it's an interesting conundrum for a, for a politician, right? Because I've, I've never heard anyone put it that way. So I'm going to have to think, think a lot more about that. So. Awesome. So another question I have related to the Congress is, you know, the time, right? So you, you clearly were a hard worker in Congress um, and you spent a lot of time in DC and you also spent time back in Chicago, right? So what, you know, from your perspective, what's the appropriate amount of time in DC versus home, right? And the amount of appropriate time, like, are you a two week on, one week off kind of guy? Are you, do you think everyone should be in DC, like, you know, 24 hours a day all year long? You know, where do you come out on the schedule between DC and district and also between like the mix of duties on the, in, in the work, like whether it's, you know, oversight versus legislative. I'm someone who slept in my office for eight and a half years. Um, my first year I had uh, had an apartment in, in, in DC. My, my wife was doing a lot of work out, out there. And, and so we did stay about in that first year, about one weekend a month, we might stay out there. And, it, and I, yeah, it did give the opportunity. I went on a, uh, you know, would, would got together with a Republican colleague of mine and his, and his wife. Uh, and we would get together for dinner. I remember going for a bike ride with uh, Jim Oberstar, who's the uh, lead Democrat on the Transportation Committee at the time. You know, they were people who lived out in D.C. So, you know, I had the, that time to, and people say, well, 
things would be very different. You know, we have better, more bipartisanship if more members lived in D.C. had those opportunities uh, to spend time in. Maybe if they moved their whole families out there, then their families would get to know each other. Could that have an impact? I, I, I think it could be somewhat helpful, but I think there's more. I don't. I don't think it, it would be a solution because there's so many other things that push the two parties apart. I, I, I don't think that's necessarily a solution. And I think there is something about being at home. I mean, I after that first year, I slept. That's when I slept in my office for eight and a half years. I probably should never have done that. There's a lot of members who do it. Um, there, no one knows how many, but fifty or sixty uh, members who who do that. I, I just think that it, it's important to be home to really understand your your district, your your, your constituents. Uh, I, I think that is critically important. And people expect to see you um, at uh, at at home. And because what the most important thing is for a representative is, is trust. That, that's the most important thing. And if they see you, they know you're there. I, I think that that's important. I, I, I never, you know, I, I don't have a definitive answer on what the best uh, balance is in terms of spending time in D.C. Work needs to get done. Uh, unfortunately, though, so much time is taken up. I, unfortunately, I didn't have to do too much of it until my last couple terms uh, in terms of spending time fundraising. There's some members that they basically just fundraise. I mean, that, that's it. Um, their time in D.C. is spent uh, dialing for dollars, as as it's called, and uh, going to going to fundraisers, and basically they have their staff tell them, you know, what to do on the floor when they have to show up for a committee, tell them what to say, and that's it. And they get back to fundraising. That's that's a problem. Uh, that takes a lot away from actually becoming a good representative. It, I would hate to be in that situation as members who who, who had to do that. Again, that's a campaign campaign finance issue, and I'm not. No one has found a great way around that one yet. Um, oversight, I think, oversight of the executive branch has suffered tremendously because of partisanship. And so, essentially, if the other party has control of the White House, you're in the majority in whichever chamber. A lot of times, it's oversight is just used to try to cause problems for the president. Um, and then, if you're of, if you're in the majority in the House, say, and the president's in your party, you, you don't want to investigate because you don't want to cause any, you know, any problems. And there has to be a, a better sense. Like, this is another issue I think Congress faces. Congress has to defend itself as an institution has to see itself as a very important institution. The first institution, as I always like to point out, that's mentioned in the Constitution, Article One um, of the Constitution, uh, is Congress. Congress doesn't defend itself enough and stand up for itself enough and know that you know, Congress is not just there to be a foil to the, the president, but part of the job of Congress is supposed to do oversight. We we pass legislation. We're supposed to make sure that it's the best of our ability, that it is, you know, implemented in the correct manner, and that the government is working as efficiently as as possible. And I, I don't think 
uh, that role was taken seriously enough by by Congress because of, because of partisanship. Yeah, in, in terms of the partisanship, if I just follow up on that a second, you know, in your mind, clearly the the party control has increased over time, right? That's yeah, maybe because it's of unstable majorities, you know, as Francis Lee would point out, but. Whatever, for whatever reason, you know, um, there are all these controls that the party can put on a member. How do you break those? How do you, or at least make them such that members can make more independent judgments instead of being dictated to by the party system? Besides the, are there other simple ways to address that issue? I don't know if there are simple ways. I know the rule change that we talked about before, I think would be would be helpful. A, a lot of it, and I don't want to leave the impression that this all comes from inside. More of it probably comes from the, from the outside. Uh, as we become more, as America has become more divided, as partisanship has become, I have argued this in some things I, I've written since I've left Congress, partisanship is now sectarian in, in our country. I mean, it, it's, that, it's that bad. It, it's the two sides hate each other. Uh, the two sides have uh, dogma that they are expected to uh, 100% follow, live up to. Uh, so if a politician steps out of line, uh, a Democrat steps out of line with Democratic dogma, same for a Republican, then they will be punished uh, by the, the primary voters. Um, and so... A lot of the problem is on the outside. Um, and somehow this, I'm not sure how, how, we, how we break this. Um, some of the things we talked about already, changing rules on the inside. I think changing primaries, getting rid of the party primaries as they exist now, I think that would help also. The dissatisfaction that Americans have, on the one hand, people are so, in some ways in elections, they're so committed to their party. But really, what they hate the other side, and that's part of sectarianship. It's not because you love your side as much as you hate the other side, and that's how elections are run. They know how to run election. Both sides know how to run an election to try to make people hate the other side so much that they'll vote for my side. They tell you when I was talking about running as an independent, I had both parties, people in both parties, who were trying to get me not to run. They they were both scared. Uh, that that I was going to run, and I think part of it is they don't like the unknown. They don't like an X factor thrown in. They again, they know how to run against the other party, um, and that's what they know how to do is to trash the other side. Uh, so somehow that need it, it, the American people, it works. It works in elections. On, on the, at the same time, the American people more than ever, I think, are unhappy with the two parties. They'll say they're unhappy with the two parties. They'd like more than ever want, want to see a, a third party. But until that actually happens, until people actually have that, that opportunity, I think they're going to continue just to fall back into, well, I hate the Republicans, like I vote for the Democrat or vice versa. Uh, so I think that's where a lot of the problem lies and where that comes from. You get into the splintering of the media and at first, and then social media, uh, I think is a, is, is a major problem. That And these are huge problems that are not easily solved in, 
I mean, that's one other thing I want to make sure before we, we, we finish this is most of the issues that we face as a country do not have simple solutions. Unfortunately, we have a lot of politicians who keep telling us the solutions are simple. It is just that evil over the side won't, you know, won't do it. Um, and, and so most solutions, most problems do not, we don't have simple solutions. They're, they're not easy. They're complicated. They're going to cause some pain. Um, but that's hard to make that, uh, it, it's hard to make that, that case these days. My next question is really around debate, dialogue. How should that occur in Congress? You know, should it be in the committee? Should it be on the floor? Should it be in back rooms? Should it be transparent to the public? You know, when you think about how members interact with each other, debate, dialogue, how should that occur? Well, there was a time where we thought sunshine's the best disinfectant. And I understand it. And sometimes it is. Um, but I, I think that too much now is posturing. Uh, there's no, there's almost no real debate that ever occurs on the House floor or committees. It, it's hard to find real debate even, but the floor, especially the House floor is just, it, it's just for making messages for political purposes, you know, for, for, for the most part. Uh, there's no real debate. There's no deliberation. Again, that's what the framers of the Constitution, that's what Madison wanted. He, he thought, we have a very diverse country. We need to have real debate. We need conciliation. We, we need, because we're so diverse, uh, we need to have representatives come to the Capitol, it wasn't in Washington at the time, and, and, and bring their constituents' interests and ideas and, and actually have a real debate and a give and take and to, to come up with compromises. And so that it, people understand that their voice is being heard. They may not win all the time, but their voice has an opportunity to, to be heard. And, but that was going to require real compromise and, and conciliation. A, a lot of times, we, I mean, we, we've lost that today. I mean, you, you look at the beginning of, of, of this country, and I, and I hate to get, uh, I, I'm, I'm afraid I'm starting to get up on the soapbox. But you look at the start of this country, you look at the, the writing of the Constitution and all the compromises that went into that. And some people say, well, some of those compromises were terrible. Yeah, they, yeah, they, compromises had to be made or else we would not have had a country if compromises were not made at, at, at that time. Uh, and today it seems like there's no sense at all that compromise has to happen. The compromise has to occur because both parties, neither side, both sides have seemed to learn that we can't, we don't have to compromise because, hey, even if we lose this time, we'll eventually be back in and we don't need to compromise. We don't need to change. And something needs to shake that up. But I don't know, un unless there's going to be a real sense of compromises needed, debate's not going to occur. But I think both the best debate and the best chance for compromise Unfortunately, now it comes behind out of the line of sight because everything that is in the line of sight can immediately go up on social media and be used to bash the other side. And uh, you can never admit that you're 
you're wrong. Um, that that's forbidden. You even when it's obvious. Um, we've seen politicians show this that you know even even when pe- everyone knows that you're wrong, you're saying something is wrong, you don't admit it, uh, and you seem to come out better for it. Um, and, and so I think that points to like, if people are really going to sit down and, and, and compromise and come up with and have real con- conciliation, um, a lot of it has to be done behind closed doors. What comes out needs to be public. And so it, what comes out in the end, yes, needs to be made public, but who said what doesn't have to be. Next question is really probably something we've already covered, but what fundamental institutional improvement do you think Congress should make within 50 years? Well, I think all the things we we, we talked about already is, is getting the power away from the uh, from from the leadership. Um, I mean, we haven't talked much about the Senate. Uh, the Senate works a little bit a little bit better. I, I don't want to get rid of the filibuster. Uh, the filibuster is the uh, uh, although you know I I'm. I understand some of the some of the arguments there. Look, the filibuster is the only thing that gets anyone to compromise. Uh, I, I think what has come out of the Senate, uh, even though some of it was done, the the Inflation Reduction Act was done on a party line vote. But you know, you had you had Joe Manchin there, who is very much a, a moderate, who really forced. I, I think what I've seen of that of that bill that now the, the, the law, I mean, there are some real compromises in there, um, which I think not even, it's certainly not perfect, but the, it was good to see in things that were accepted. There are Democrats, there are progressive Democrats who had to swallow things in that bill that they really didn't like, but they did. And I, and I was happy to see that. I was happy to see that that happened. You had the bipartisan infrastructure bill last year you know, the Senate is, you know, working to some extent. Uh, the House isn't. And that's where the big problems are. And that's what really needs to, the, the House needs to change. So what about in terms of books or other thinking about congressional reform? Anything has been interesting to you to, to read or coming from a, a, a scholar or a, or a practitioner? Well, I'm, I'm now just starting to, uh, after I... It announced I was considering running as an independent and then announced that uh, I was not going to run this year, but I'm going to work on building this growing independence movement. Uh, I've been having a lot more discussions with organizations that are working on various ideas on how to make it easier to for, for independence, just how to shake up the system. Uh, changing the way primaries work uh, is, a, is, a, is a big one. Uh, and uh, so I'm just sort of starting out on that and, and seeing what I want to, what I think might be the best way to to do this. So there's nothing in particular, anyone in particular, I would point out right now, but I think there's some good work being done uh, on this and uh, hopefully we can see some, uh, we can see some progress. Well, I think you answered my last question there, which is what are your plans for the future? Are you going to uh, you're going to work on this independence movement. Or are you going to um, run again? What are your, what do you, you know, are you going to write some books back to communications? You know, what's, what do you have on the horizon? Well, I've been, uh, as I said, at the beginning, I'm doing some consulting. I've been spent a lot of time uh, writing and speaking and uh, I'm going to continue to do that. Um, 
Look, I, I, I don't have a um, – it, it wasn't a great desire to recapture my house seat <clears throat> that was driving me to consider running as an independent. I, I love the house as, as an institution. I think it's incredibly important for, for this for this country. Um, I what was motivating me was I'm very frustrated with the fact the house is not working. I'm frustrated with the two parties. I think the two parties are neither party is moving us in a direction that is necessarily good for the country. I, I think we face some real challenges. Uh, I think we cannot take our republic for granted. Now, what the conclusion I came to this year, uh, you know, last month was uh, me running as independent. I, I, I don't think that's the best way to have an impact. So I'm just going to look and, and figure out it, as, uh, as time goes on what the best, where, where I could do the most good. And, and so Right now, I mean, for the near future, it's going to be continuing to uh, to write and to and to speak out, and uh, we'll see uh, about running for office uh, again in in the future. Great, well, Congressman Lipinski, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for your service, and uh, best of luck with you know all the good work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you.